So Mark's gospel uh, begins saying, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Begin with the end in mind. Now this is a copyrighted statement, even though I'm pretty sure my dad told me this in about 47 different ways when I was a kid. But Franklin Covey has copyrighted this, so I just want to make that clear in his uh, book that he made millions on because of people like me who have practiced the 47 habits of highly uneffective people. Uh, he was able to generate these books and resources about the seven habits of highly effective people. And habit number two is begin with the end in mind. According to Franklin Covey, he said every, every act, everything that happens has sort of two creations. It's created twice. Uh, first, it's created mentally, and then it's created physically. So, uh, you know, whatever your, your coach telling you, you got to visualize yourself, you know, catching the ball, and that will help you not drop the ball. Uh, and then, but then you still have to go out there and actually catch the ball, visualizing it. It's not enough. So beginning with the end in mind. It's a great life principle, and it works for all kinds of things, and that includes our discipleship, our Christian life. We begin our journey even if it's beginning again. In a way, every Sunday for me and maybe for you is a beginning. It's a new beginning. It's saying, okay, I have to reorient. I got to get my compass out and find out, remember which way is north and make sure I'm walking in the right direction. Uh, because I know I've walked a lot this week, but for all I know, I've just been running around in circles. So let's reorient this thing, figure out where we're going. Peter's confession in the text that Carrie read for us is a turning point in Mark's gospel. Many people will refer to it like a hinge on a door or a hinge anywhere where something is leaning one way and then it begins to shift the other way. The first eight chapters of Mark's gospel are headed in a certain direction. And then with Peter's confession and the transfiguration, it's hinges and things shift towards the cross in Jerusalem. And we covered that in the spring. We kind of backtracked and come back to this place uh, when Amberly and the kids and, and I were in Sacramento uh, for family vacation. We were there at a Christian camp and they have a ropes course. And one of their elements on the low ropes course is like a giant platform seesaw. It's genius. I don't know why I don't have one of these in my backyard. It's genius. Like endless hours for kids to have fun and smash their toes and stuff. But it's basically just a log in the middle with a big wooden deck on top. And so we had so much fun just, you know, standing and seeing how, if we could balance the seesaw, and then depending on which side dad leans on, of course, the things move. So I was like making use of the hinge, leaning this way, leaning this way. Well, Peter, he leans over just a little bit, and the whole thing tips. The whole thing turns, and we have a downhill movement that we see before us now. The setting is Caesarea Philippi. Uh, some of you, has anyone been to this area? Jenny, have you been? I thought you may have been there. Okay, Jenny's been over there. And so the thing we need to know about this region of the world in this day was they were a, they were notoriously known for pagan stuff. I mean, they had this, this god pan and all this stuff. They were kind of like all streams of crop fertility and, and, uh, you know, it all came through there. They were like sort of at the base of a mountain and that's where all the good stuff came from. And so they, they thought that god was in control of all that stuff. So if things were good, pan was happy, things were bad, unhappy. So they spent a lot of time making sure things were kosher there the base of the mountain. So it's amazing that we have kind of this beautiful Christian confession in the midst of pagan territory. It's a reminder that God can reveal himself anywhere, right? That's one of the reasons many of us are here, is God can show up anywhere. 
Uh, there's nowhere we can run away from God. Even the depths of hell, the psalmist says, you know, God finds us there no matter how far we run away. The text says, on the way, on the way, Jesus asked them a question. Just those three words, on the way, have so much in them. It reminds us that the journey of Christianity is a journey. It is not a static thing that we learn in classrooms and then we go out and write documents about. It's something that we learn on the fly. We learn at work. We learn at the kitchen table. We learn in the break room. We learn driving down the road. We learn when we're making out our will. We learn when we're making out our plan for the week, our our office hours for the year. We learn all of these ordinary things that we do when we go to the doctor, when we go visit consultants. Everything that we do is an opportunity to work out our discipleship. It doesn't matter where we are. And that's why school is such a beautiful place. It's a great lab to look at how we're doing in the midst of these things. The on-the-wayness of discipleship is a critical thing that we can't miss as disciples. So Jesus asks a question, not out of insecurity, not wondering how he's doing, but he asks, who do people say that I am? And the answer that the disciples give collectively is, well, some say John the Baptist, you know, kind of like Herod. I mean, they think he, you know, there was a bad deal. We shouldn't have killed him. Now he's come back to life to sort of haunt us in this way. Some say you're John the Baptist. <clears throat> Others say you're Elijah. There was no prophet with more like exciting stuff going on than Elijah. Uh, just read the stories of Elijah and Elisha and they're kind of fun. You know, the whole getting caught up into heaven thing. And yeah, Ethan's raising his hand going, hey, and Elisha gets to command bears to go. Kill bears. It's fun stuff. A lot of excitement around Elijah. So they're saying, you know, here's a guy that, that talks about kingdom and heaven and things are moving. There's kind of this mixed world. It's got to be Elijah. Got to be Elijah. And then the others still say, well, he was one of the prophets. Not the prophet, not the Davidic waited for prophet in the line of Moses, but just a prophet, somebody who does some good things, you know, miracle worker, that kind of stuff. Jesus continues the conversation by saying, okay, thank you for all those summary thoughts of others, but who do you say that I am? Who do y'all say that I am? It's second person, plural. How, how, who, who, does, who do you, you all say? My close disciples, who do you say that I am? Jesus is not really tuned in to the masses. He knows that the success of his mission depends on the response of the close followers, not the outsiders, but the people in the inner circle. If they get it, the world gets it. If they miss it, we're, we're left you know, without the kind of hope that we have. So Jesus knows these close followers. Who do you say that I am? Who does the church say Jesus is? Not who does the news channel say Jesus is or who does our culture say Jesus is. Who's the church? Who do we say that Jesus is? I love that Jesus doesn't force the question. He doesn't pound them with this every day. But he gives them time and he lets this whole thing percolate. And along the way, who do you say that I am? Inviting consideration that they may not have thought about in this way. But there comes a time when everyone has to answer this question. And not just once, but we continue to ask to answer it. And we either answer in the affirmative or in the negative. There's no middle ground when it comes to who the people say that I am. We're on one side or the other. There's no middle ground on this deal. 
And can't you feel the weight of the question? You're reading along, but who do you say that I am? It just strikes you. It just hits you right between the eyes. It's a striking question. Great force. I love what Franz Kafka says about a great book. He says, a good book should be like the ice axe to the frozen sea within inside of us. Right? It's, it's, a good book ought to just get to that frozen stuff inside of you and just chip it away. It ought to, you ought to know when you're reading a good book, right? It ought to do something to you. Or if you'd rather, a quote from George Jones in his song, Who's Going to Fill Their Shoes, right? He says, you know, this whole world is full of singers, but only a few are chosen to tear your heart out when they sing. You remember that line? Only a few are going to just rip your heart out when they sing to you. Isn't that great? Don't you want to be one of those people that when you sing, it's not just a song, but it's, it's something that just tears out the hearts of people. This question, you just can't get away from it. It's right there on the table. You clear the desk, and it's back. You clear the dash, and it's back. You clear the dresser, and it's back. You close the book, and it's still there. The question remains. Can't you see the disciples with their jaws kind of dropped, just looking at each other like, who's going to speak up here? <laughs> who's going to answer for us? All right, he's, he's looking at us. He's waiting, and here we are walking, and it's not going away. Nobody's asking about the baseball game. Like, we're still left holding this question. And so Peter, to his credit, speaks up, the spokesman of the group. And he answers, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. This is an enlightened, gifted response. We know that revelation played a part because of the revelation of the Holy Spirit. To be able to see who Jesus was, Peter says, you are the Messiah. This is an answer that we can't know or learn from studying the historical Jesus. We can't learn it from the History Channel special on Jesus and whether he had a secret girlfriend. We learn it only by revelation from God's Holy Spirit. Peter is the first human character in the story to make this confession. So the narrator makes the confession, first rattle out of the box. God makes the confession when he's speaking to Jesus in his baptism. And the demons make the confession when they say, whoa, we know that you're the Son of God. But Peter's the first human to correctly speak, you are the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And who gets anointed? The only people that get anointed in the Old Testament are the prophets, the priests, and the kings. So Jesus is the anointed one. We say in Christian theology that he is the summation of prophet, priest, and king. Right? He fulfills all of those roles. He's the prophet to us that's preaching the good news to the poor. He's the priest to us who stands in the middle, who's, who is hung on a cross to be a mediator between us and God. Right, taking our sin upon his shoulders, pronouncing forgiveness, and giving us new life in, through the resurrection. And he's also our king. He's the one that rules forever and ever. Amen. From the beginning, before there was a beginning, to the end of all things, Jesus is in the king's chair. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. Peter is saying, you are the one through whom all of God's promises will be fulfilled. You're the guy. You're the Messiah. And Peter here represents us. He leads the way and kind of leaves a trail for us. Even though we have to make our own confession, all of us, Peter's blazed the trail. 
the answer to Jesus' piercing question. And then, after this great triumphant response, Jesus gives a warning. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why in the world would you get the winning answer and then tell people to be quiet about it? Yes, you've got it. You've seen who I am now. Shh. Not a word. No one expected the Messiah to look like this. No one expected a ordinary rabbi, a humble rabbi, who's walking around the villages of Galilee, teaching and healing and casting out demons. No one, no one saw this coming. So the first part of the journey is knowing who the Messiah is. And that's Jesus. That's part one. That's beginning with the end in mind. You are the Messiah. But part two is, what kind of Messiah are you? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And that's what sometimes takes a little while to work out with fear and trembling. Who exactly is the Messiah? What kind of Messiah is the Son of God? See, Peter was right about the title, but he didn't yet have understanding. He wasn't quite up to speed on what the title meant. And that's where many of us as Christians stop. We get the revelation right. We get the title right. Yes, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. You are the Messiah. And then that's that's it. That's we stop. We're, we're sort of stinted in our growth. The way that we love God makes all the difference. Right? My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Well, the way that we love Jesus makes all the difference because there were people that were loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember the zealots, uh, the Sicarii, they, they were the dagger men. You know, they were the guys that didn't mess around. And when they were wanting to bring this messianic kingdom sooner than later, they were like us. They were disillusioned with poor leadership in their area. And they're like, man, I'm tired of waiting around for this. I'm tired of the bureaucrats. I'm tired of all the stuff. Let's make this thing happen. So they have these secret back channel meetings and they get together. And I mean, they were stealthy dudes and they got after it. And they went about the Messianic kingdom that way with violence, with overthrowing power. So Jesus' command for silence, I think, has to do with maturity. Until Peter understands the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, he doesn't need to call attention to the Messiah. Hey, come check out this new great thing. Well, what is it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Peter needs instruction before he speaks. We need instruction before we speak, whether that's with our mouth or with our life. And so then in the text immediately following, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Whoa. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. And he said this very plainly. And Peter, who just makes the great confession, pulls him aside and says, whoa, 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 no. And he rebuked him. But turning and seeing his disciples, making sure everyone hears, he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, you are making the Messiah fit in your image not making yourself fit in the Messiah's image. So you've still got a ways to go, Peter. And it's an invitation. 
allowing the images of false messiahs and quick fixes to be purged from our imagination. Remember when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness and he gets three easy ways out? Can you say that? Three easy ways? Three, that sounds funny. But he gets three offers for an easy way out. And to each one he replies with Scripture. And he goes the distance. Right? He goes the full journey of human suffering on our behalf to demonstrate that man does not live by bread alone. And that we don't get to command God by our whims. Purging a false messiahs. So we have the benefit of the end of the story. Thanks be to God, right? We can see the whole thing in view. And we've got a cross on our altar table. And we sing the great hymns of faith that center around the cross. So we know the end of the story. We have that benefit. We see the glory of the cross and resurrection. So we don't have to be quiet, right? We can uncork and let our lives speak. We continue in instruction. I think that's the back to school, back to work, back to wherever you are dream, is let your life speak. The good news of Jesus Christ and the humble Messiah himself is the good news. Right? This, is, this is the God that we get. This is the Savior that we get. He's one who knows everything about us, who's walked where we've walked, and he's felt what we've felt. Fully God, but fully man. This is our God. This is our Savior. That's the good news. And so calling the crowd to him, this Messiah who's different than what everyone expected said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. Excuse me, will save it. I remember when I was just trying to get my mind wrapped around what Christianity was and people tell me, well, you got you know, you to read the scriptures and you got to understand the gospels. You got to know who Jesus is. And so uh, I remember, I don't know why it sticks in my mind, but I was, I was plowing the arena. You know, and I and I was I was learning. And I was like, I got to maybe I can memorize something. So I wrote this down on a note card. These two scriptures, Mark eight thirty four and thirty five. And I remember learning it and going, this is the craziest thing ever. If you want to save your life, you lose it. Okay, that's contrary to everything you would imagine. It's just this paradox of a Christian life. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. We have the hope of, with Christ, overthrowing the power of sin inside and outside of us through the cross. We can live in our back-to-school days, back-to-work days, to overthrow sin and injustice, giving hope to everything that we do, giving hope to everyone around us, standing in the places that sometimes no one else wants to stand, and losing our life that we might save it. Beginning with the end in mind. The cross is the goal. And Jesus sums it up here. You want to save your life, you give it away. If you give away your life, you'll save it. But if you hang on to your life, and you try to preserve your own life, you'll lose it. So the only things that we really have are what we first give away. 
C.S. Lewis summarizes this really well, and I'd like to close with this quote. I don't normally read long quotes, but this one's a little bit long. Uh, and it just captures so well, I think, what Jesus is saying here. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and the death of your body even in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Hold back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find Him. And with Him, everything else thrown in. So Lewis is saying that Jesus is not prescribing this morbid way of going forward. Like you just have to every day wake up and die to self and your life's just going to get worse every day. He says if you lose yourself, you will find Christ. And then when you find Christ, we know that he's in the business of giving and giving himself to us. So it's a great trade. I give myself that I might gain Christ. And in gaining Christ, I get everything I've ever longed for. Even the things I didn't know that I longed for, I get those too. And that's how the kingdom of God works. That's the part of Messiah that Peter didn't understand at first, but he learned eventually, didn't he? Remember Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and Peter calls all attention to this very truth and this very thing. So wherever you are, going back to school, going to the same old thing you've been doing for 30 years and nothing changes, may this week be a new beginning of sorts. May it be an invitation for realignment, to make a personal confession, a family confession, team confession, you are the Christ the Son of God, that you are the Messiah. And in you, all of my hopes and dreams reside. Therefore, I give myself to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As the ushers come forward.